0: This morning you can go ahead and turn in your Bible over to Judges chapter 2, that's where we're going to be, week number 3 in our study through this old book, this ancient collection of stories about God and what he did among his people, stories of the relationship between God and Israel. This is the second introduction, this chapter that we're coming to this morning, it's the second introduction to the book. Mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, that Judges starts out with two chapters back to back that come at the beginning of the story from two slightly different angles. Last week we looked at one that was all facts. It was basically military history. Not much interpretation, just a record of who did, what, who did what, when, and what happened. This morning, this introduction, this second one in chapter two, is all about interpretation. It's the so what that we need if we want to make sense of the meaning behind all the events that we talked about last week. When I go to a new museum or historical site, I have a compulsive desire to read the signs. I imagine most of us break down into one camp or another on that. You know, some of you just like to experience whatever it is you're seeing fresh as if for the first time for anyone anywhere. Others of you are like me and you just can't stand the thought that you might miss Why you're supposed to care about whatever it is that you're seeing. This tendency in me is probably at its highest when I'm in an art museum because I don't understand anything about art, but I like it. I enjoy learning about it. But for me, good paintings are really just windows into a particular time and place. I like them for what they tell me about history, right? Some of you out there, the artists among you, just like to experience them. You know, you just like to go to an art museum and sit on the little benches that they provide and just stare and wonder the choice of colors and the use of light and the, the dimensions that come out when the colors are combined in just that way. Me, I don't get any of that. I can't tell the difference between, you know, an actual masterwork by an impressionist and some sort of cheap motel art copy of some sort of masterwork. So what I need are signs. So I go into a new room of, of paintings and I'm going to read the big, the big board on the, on the wall that tells me here's what this period was. Here's how these artists were responding to everybody else. Here's how they were pushing back, or the new ground that they were trying to uncover. Look for this when you look at their paintings. Sometimes I even forget to look at the paintings, to be honest. I'm just reading the signs, you know, trying to get some insight that I can use at a dinner party later. I don't even pay attention to the paintings half the time, if I'm not careful. I don't know if, you, if you're like me, if you like those signs, whether you like them or not, you're about to get one of those signs, this morning, because this second chapter of Judges, this, this second introduction to the book, is the one that sets the context. It's the thing you need to know to make sense of all the other individual stories. It sets up a sort of template that you could lay over each one of the individual stories that you come to, much like an art museum. If you want to understand what this individual painting is doing, you probably need to read the sign on the wall that's going to tell you what to look for in this room from this period, what these guys were all about. It's a key for interpretation. That's what Judges chapter 2 gives us. That's what it is for the rest of the book. Without chapter 2, there's a good chance you'd miss what's going on in each individual story. You'd miss what you're supposed to notice. You might miss what the details represent, what they, what they point to. And, and, and you're especially going to be at risk in Judges because the details are so fascinating, they're unexpected and unforgettable. <coughs> But we cannot afford to lose the forest for the trees. One of the things you're going to notice from this introduction when we, as we make our way through chapter 2, one of the things you're going to notice is that the specific judges whose stories come through the rest of this book, they're never the point. The judge himself or herself, they're never the point. Don't look there. I mean look there, but you're looking there to look somewhere else. The judges are never the point. The, the settings, never the point. Whoever it happens to be who's oppressing Israel at this time or another time, they're not the point. They don't even get mentioned in this introduction that sets the stage. Everything else that you're going to be tempted to, to, to lock in on as we go story by story, all the names of the judges, the names of the nations who are around Israel, whoever it is that's in that individual story, they're just props. And they're important. I mean, maybe I'm overstating it a little bit. They're important, and we're going to give them their due. But in the grand scheme of things, with Judges chapter 2 as our guide, what we're going to see is that all those individual names, they're just props for a story that's about God and Israel. They're props that help bring to the surface truths about the way God relates to Israel and the way Israel relates to God. In every individual story we go through from next week to the end of the series, what we're going to be asking of it, with Judges 2 as our guide, is what does this story tell me about Israel, and what does this story tell me about God? This chapter this morning is going to set us up to see it. It's a relationship drama that plays out in a cycle that repeats over and over throughout the book. This morning, I want to introduce you to what I hope is one of the only things, let me rephrase that, to what I hope that if you only remember a couple of things about this Judges series, this is one of them, the thing we're going to talk about today. I'm not going to hope that this is the only thing you remember, but I'm hoping this is one of the things you remember that makes it through the filter of your memory uh, a year from now. I want you to remember that Judges operates with a kind of cycle that shows up again and again and again in every one of the individual stories. And this morning, we're going to talk about the cycle because Judges chapter 2 lays it out. I've listed it in its various steps on the worship guide. That's going to be especially helpful for you today. I think it could be something you might want to hang on to and carry with you the the, the sheet that that we've given you in the worship guide so that each week as we come to a new story, a new judge, you can look at that and understand, okay, I'm looking for these high points in this story as it's told to me. Different people label the cycles and the different parts of the cycle in different ways. I've chosen my own words and my own numbering system, and hopefully you'll see where I'm coming from as we get into the word today. I want to begin by just reading the first paragraph. It sets the stage for everything else that comes. And it starts in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. I want to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Judges chapter 2, verse 6. I'm going to go from there all the way through uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel, went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. The cycle of judges always begins with Israel's forgetfulness. And that forgetfulness is not always written into the story. There's not always a verse at the beginning of each judge story that says, and Israel forgot what God had done for them in Egypt, in the wilderness, and in the land. It doesn't always make make it into each story, but it's always there. Always the backdrop. The generation that came with Joshua into the land had seen God do amazing things. That's what verse 7 recalls. All the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, the ones who had seen all the the great work that the Lord had done for Israel, they were good. They were obedient. As long as that generation lived, the people stayed true to God. They trusted Him. And they obeyed Him. But then, verse 10 tells us, another generation arose and this one did not know the lord and they did not know what he had done for israel what happened it's probably not that they didn't know the facts of their history israel's whole way of life was built around feasts that celebrated the facts of their history they they would have known they would have been taught the facts of what god had done for israel in the days of their fathers and grandfathers It's not that they didn't know the facts. More likely that they didn't know God and His goodness from experience. You see, those first generations, they had seen it. They had an experiential knowledge that made it from their heads to their hearts. So that what they wanted from life, the way they interacted with their world, all of that was shaped by what they'd seen. But then this generation arose that had not seen with their own eyes and the facts that they'd been told by their parents, by their community. They didn't, they didn't taste them. We often cite the difference between knowing that honey is sweet because somebody told you Jonathan Edwards' image. And knowing that honey is sweet because you put it in your mouth and you can taste it. The generation of Joshua and even those who came right after him, they knew that God's love was sweet. They tasted it. The generation that followed him, they'd been told, but they didn't know it. They didn't know God in relationship. They knew of his work like we know of George Washington, not like we know our fathers or our spouses or someone else that's important in your life. Friends, before we get any further into the details of this cycle, we need to know that we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable when we don't experience God as one who's been good to us. Let me say it, let me say it one more time. We are all, all of us, just like Israel, we are vulnerable when we don't experience God as someone who has been good to us. When the good news of what He's done in the past isn't living and active news in our lives, when it's not experiential knowledge, we, like Israel, start to judge the past in light of the present rather than judging the present in light of the past. We'll start to be more aware of the things in our present that we don't want than we are aware of the things God has given us that assure us of His love no matter what. It's a daily battle for every single one of us. All of us have memories that are just not reliable, they're easily manipulated and they always defer to what's fresh. And every single one of us is going to face hard things that make God's love seem remote. I know many of you are right now. And every single one of us will face opportunities to disobey God that make God's wisdom seem doubtful. And that's why Christian community is so important. We're called, friends, we're we're supposed to be a community of memory. Where we're helping one another hold on to the truth of what God has done. So that we see what we face now in the light of his faithfulness proven time and again. Not just a memory of specific things that God has done in our lives. That's helpful. It's helpful to have friends who've known you long enough that they can point to evidence in your own past where you've experienced God's goodness in ways you couldn't explain. That helps. That's part of the story. But even more than that, we're called to be a community of memory where the news of Jesus and his love is fresh and alive and experiential, where it's not abstract and distant. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why God gave us this ritual at the heart of our worship, to come back to it over and over again so that as a community, we're remembering together this news that happened in the past but changes the present and the future for all who believe. And it's especially important when we're struggling. When you're struggling, what you need are friends who will tell you, I I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't understand why God has allowed what He's allowed. I don't know where it's going from here. But remember Jesus. Jesus. Remember that his cross defines God's love, its scale. And his cross defines God's purposes for your life and everything that you experience. He is for you. Jesus proves it. Don't forget. Don't relate to God in your present, no matter what. Don't relate to God in your present as if Jesus isn't true. The cycle always begins with forgetfulness and all of us are vulnerable. The next step in the cycle is infidelity. In their forgetfulness of God's goodness, Israel turns over and over again to other sources that seem to be safer bets. You can see it start to come out in verse 11. I want to read a couple of these verses for you. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. The same one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They abandoned him. The one who didn't leave them alone. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord And they serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. These Baals, these Ashtaroth, these are just the main gods of the Canaanites. Now often, these gods would have been represented in statues that just seem ridiculous to us as modern people. We can't imagine why someone would pay homage to something they made. It can be hard to see why that would have been attractive to people. Why Israel would have traded this history of amazing, miraculous deeds for something they could whittle up in a, in a hobby shop. It's hard to see why it's attractive until you recognize what these gods, what these images represented. Then, once you recognize what they represented, it starts to sound a whole lot more familiar. Baal and, and his consorts, they represented fertility. The fertility of the land that you couldn't do without if you wanted to survive in this agricultural society. Fertility of the womb. The families that were the key to survival. You needed children to work the land. These gods were were external representations of the most basic desires of the people who worshipped them. Now imagine you're Israel. You're coming into this land. You're surrounded by other people's who knew the land better than you do, who understood how to make it work, understood the cycles of the seasons and how to prepare for them. People who had figured out already what's necessary for thriving and and they seem to have it all together, right? These are are the experts. And you hear these prosperous and secure and happy-seeming folks talk about how the key, if you want to be successful in this land, the key is these gods. The key is to keep them happy. Israel wants what the Canaanites have and it makes sense that they would seek it in the way that the Canaanites do. Friends, we are no less likely than Israel to take our cues for what makes for a good and happy and prosperous life from our neighbors. The ones who seem to have it together who seem prosperous and secure and happy, who seem to have a lot of fun. It's natural to look at others and follow their lead for how to get where we want to be. Israel's desires were the same as ours. Security, prosperity, pleasure. Are we really any less prone than they were to seeking these things in the ways that are laid out to us by the world? Every time we love something or trust something, we look to some other source of security and prosperity, whatever it might be, every time that happens, what we're doing is substituting the Lord for an idol, just like they did with the Baals. We, like Israel, are betting on some other God against the Lord. We're saying that something else is more trustworthy, more reliable, more fulfilling and desirable than he is. God's response to Israel's infidelity is always anger. That's the next step in this cycle. Israel forgets God's goodness to them. They respond through their forgetfulness to the prosperity of the people around them with infidelity to the God who would made a covenant with them. And God's response to their infidelity every time is jealous anger. It's a very specific kind of anger. It's not the anger of a, of a quick-tempered, frustrated driver caught in traffic and late for a meeting towards the one who cuts in front of him without paying attention. It isn't the anger that's capricious and volatile, the anger of mythical gods of Greece. My boys and I have been reading this adaptation of the Odyssey lately, and I've been so profoundly struck by how unpredictable these Greek gods are. Poor Odysseus just keeps walking into it at one pile after another, Unbeknownst to him, he keeps stepping on some God's tender feelings and he always has these gods mad at him, holding him back, trying to get home after the war. God's anger is not like those God's anger, unpredictable, volatile, and insecure. God's anger is always predicted by promises he's made in his covenant. I'm for you, he's told Israel. I'll never be against you. Obey me. Have allegiance to me and me alone. If you don't, then I won't go in front of you anymore. I won't drive out the nations that are in your land. I won't protect you or defend you. His anger is always predictable, and underneath it, it's always jealous. Now, his anger is not the anger of the quick tempered driver caught in traffic. It isn't the anger of a capricious and insecure mythical deity. His anger is the righteous, inevitable anger of a jealous husband who loves his wife. It's the anger of a husband who's left for another despite his faithful love and careful attention and consistent presence. God responds to Israel's infidelity with a jealous anger that always leads to punishment. Look again at the text. Look at verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, We've talked before and we're going to talk again about the prominence of judgment in this book. And the way that the judgment that comes across in this book is going to challenge our view of God. We've talked too of the the need to be very specific in how we understand God's anger and where it comes from and why it makes sense. Here the only thing I want to point out is that his anger is always personal always relational. His anger, in other words, is always a byproduct of his love. One commentator wrote that this anger that we see in, in Judges 2 and throughout the book, it's the price we pay for being loved. The jealous anger of God at us when we abandon him for some other lover is always the price that we pay for being loved. What he means by that, that's a great way to put it. What he he means by that is this. Israel was always casual in their commitment to God. Their commitment to God was on the surface. It was shallow. It was transactional. Their relationship to him was, was one of convenience and immediate gratification. His commitment to them was deeply personal. It was highly specific. And because of how deep and personal and specific his love for them was, he can't just treat their abandonment of him casually as if it's no big deal. What would that say about his commitment to them? What would that say about the depth of his affection for them? If he could see their, their abandonment of him as, as just, you know, sort of blip on the radar, speed bump in what he's, what he's dealing with in the world. No big deal. Moving on. God is not, friends, friends here's what you need to know But on judges, from Judges 2 and from much of what's coming in the rest of the book, God is not casual about, not as casual about you as you are about Him. Often we only rarely consider Him. We doubt whether He exists. We make choices as if He doesn't care. But He cares deeply about us he sees everything that we do and he wants our absolute allegiance for maybe you're not a a believer this morning you know that this is true about how god feels for you as well the bible says that he made you in his image that he made you to reflect his glory that he made you with an affection and a careful attention that he didn't apply to anything else in the world that he made And that special relationship that comes by the fact that you were made in his image is one that includes his love for you. It's his love that causes him to give you breath. Every breath you've ever breathed, did you supply that for yourself? Where'd that come from? The Bible says it came from God. He's given it to you along with rain to water the ground, to feed your belly, Because He loves you. And that's held true despite the fact that you haven't been grateful for the breaths that you've breathed that you couldn't have supplied for yourself or the food that you've eaten that didn't come from your hand. And God is not casual in His love towards you. That can be very, very, very good news for you. Or it could be very, very bad news for you. In Israel's cycle, it was often very bad news. The next step in the cycle is distress. Israel's oppression. God's response to their infidelity was to confront them every time with the implications of their choices. Here's what you want. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. He gives them exactly what they want to expose how wrong they were for not wanting him. Now, this distress phase in the cycle, this is the one where most of the individual stories pick up. Most of the stories of each individual judge, they don't start with a backstory about Israel forgetting him, about Israel turning to the Baals, about God's jealousy and His response in anger. They'll, they'll, they'll refer to those things in a verse or two often. But then the story really picks up in their distress. Verse 15 just summarizes it. They were in terrible distress. Now, The tyrants who oppressed Israel, like every other tyrant in the history of the world, who because they have power have chosen to use it to abuse the weak, the tyrants who oppress Israel are guilty of their tyranny. It's an offense for which they were punished. But behind their tyranny, was also God's hand giving them rain. There's a deep, deep irony in the setup of each one of these judges' stories. Israel's downfall was looking to their neighbors, following their neighbor's lead to the good life. God's response was to give them over to slavery. You want to follow their lead? Israel's bet was that the gods of their neighbors would have more power to secure them, and their futures, than the God of their fathers. So God put them in a position to test the powers of these gods that they'd look to. Could they deliver you from oppression? They're plenty good at swallowing up all the sacrifices you make to them. How do they do at helping you when you need something from them? see, friends, God's judgment is always about exposing the lies that we tell about Him when we turn to something besides Him for security, for significance, or prosperity. God will always vindicate His name. Israel wanted the leadership of their neighbors And he gave it to them in the form of a tyrant. Israel wanted the protection and the provision of these other gods. And so God left them to the power of what they'd made with their own hands. And in that setting, Israel was always helpless. We've seen already, I've said this a couple of times, I'm going to keep saying it just so that it sticks in your mind. The Book of Judges is a book about a relationship. It's a book about the relationship between God and Israel. Everything else in it is just props. All the individual judges, all the nations who were oppressing Israel, their neighbors, they're props in a story about God and Israel. We've seen how God responds to Israel's infidelity. Now we wonder, how will God respond to Israel's pain? The most important theme in this passage and in the whole book is God's grace towards His people, even though they don't deserve it. The most important theme in in Judges 2 and throughout the book of Judges is God's grace towards His people in their pain, despite the fact that they don't deserve it. And every time, God responds to their distress with compassion. They forget him, but he never forgets his promises. Their love for him runs cold. His love for them remains the same. God always remembers. Verse 16 comes out of nowhere. Verse 15 has left us off with Israel's terrible distress. Israel's distress comes from the Lord doing exactly what he told them he would do. If they turned away from him. No surprises so far. The distress was part of the plan. But then in verse 16 we're told God raised up judges. Who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Where does this come from? Why? What happened? It well, isn't that God got it wrong. He wasn't wrong about Israel. It isn't that Israel changed their minds and came towards God. It's that God, seeing their pain, hearing their groaning, was moved to pity. Look at verse 18. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of all those who afflicted and oppressed them. He saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of each judge. His love for them didn't change even when they changed. His love for them was rooted in his character, not in their character. Notice that in this description, this, this sort of summary of God raising up judges... None of the judges are named. None of their deeds are celebrated. This, is, this chapter is the key to understanding the whole rest of the book. It's the interpretive key. It's the sign on the wall of the room in the art gallery. It tells you what to look for. It tells you what's going on in each individual story. This chapter is the key. And when it comes to the judges provided for the deliverance of Israel, they don't even name them. They don't cite off examples of the amazing things that they did. They don't talk about tent pegs being driven through temples. They don't talk about thousands being killed with the blowing of trumpets and the holding of torches. They don't talk about the jawbone in the hand of Samson that slays thousands of Philistines. They don't talk about these details at all. Don't look there. Look here. The Lord raised up judges. The Lord saved Israel out of the hand of those who oppressed them. That's what you're supposed to notice. Friends, the judges that are coming, they're never supposed to be great role models for us. You'll see pretty quickly that they aren't. Sometimes they model a good, healthy faith in God and his power. At best, they model that in their weakness and in their sin. The judges are not who we're supposed to follow. The judges are props that show us God's love, his power to use anyone he chooses to use. The point is God and what He's doing and the remarkable steadfastness of His love. Friends, look at how He loves those who betray Him. Those who responded to His careful, elaborate attention to their needs by forgetting Him. What you need to know if you're not yet a believer in Jesus is that this same God who responds to Israel's betrayal with love and compassion offers you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, offers you this morning freedom from whatever Lord you've enslaved yourself to. Whatever master may have control of your life right now, this God despite your rejection of Him, offers you freedom. Because He loves you. Even if you can't love yourself, He loves you. And if you're a believer this morning, if God responded to the pain of Israel, despite their unbelief and infidelity, with compassion, Imagine how He thinks on you in your pain as one who is joined to His beloved Son. As one who is wrapped up in Jesus so that when God sees you He sees His Son. Imagine His compassion for you this morning in your pain. And know that whatever mystery may cloud Your experience right now. You are not alone. And in Christ, you never will be. If the cycle ended here, it'd be a happy story, wouldn't it? But it isn't. It's a cycle, it's not linear. Happens over and over and over. And just like the generation after those who had experienced God's goodness forgot him, so every generation, as soon as the judge has passed from the scene, forgets once again God's goodness. More than a cycle, it's a spiral. It gets worse and worse and worse throughout the book as it goes forward. Look at verse 19. Whenever the judge died, they turned back. And they were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods. Serving them and bowing down to them. They didn't drop any of their practices. I love the way that's translated. They didn't drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, once again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because his people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I'll no longer drive out before the many of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Israel's response is forgetfulness. God's response is jealousy. an appropriate, righteous jealousy. And he leaves them where they are, surrounded by their powerful neighbors, to see who they'll trust. And if Judges is a test, it's a test that always ends in the same way. Israel fails it every time. I think one of the best lessons to take from Israel, one of the things Judges is here to help us to see is that Israel's repentance, their turning back, never penetrated the surface. Their natures never changed. As long as they had good leadership and protection from those who oppressed them, they were were okay. They were faithful to an extent. As soon as they were on their own again, as soon as 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 you take the external restraints off, as one person put it, as soon as the teacher has left the second grade classroom, then they go all natural. All hell breaks loose. And you see, they they haven't changed at all. They haven't dropped their practices. They're no less stubborn. Their natures haven't changed. And the external constraint of a good judge was helpful to a point, but it was not enough. No temporary deliverer ever would be. By the end of this story, you'll see it seems Israel just cannot stay faithful. And in their experience, I think we're going to see a lot of ourselves. Israel's experience here, this cycle, the fact that it happens over and over, it's told like this to help us to see the enslaving power of sin. All of us should be able to, to to connect with this experience. Who of us hasn't had some sort of habit in our life, some sort of practice, some sort of stubbornness that we know isn't healthy, we know it's harmful to us, we know it hurts those that we love, we know it's offensive to God, but we just can't seem to shake it. Who of us hasn't recognized that sometimes external constraints can help? Accountability. It factors in. Changing your environment. It points you in the right direction. It can set you up for success. Like the judges that Israel enjoyed. External constraints, not nothing. But it's never enough. What judges, what this relapse, this constant relapse shows is that what we need is the internal transformation of our desires. We need new hearts. We, want, we need hearts that want something different. Judges is here to show us what sort of deliverer we really need. Yes, by all means, we need a deliverer who will redeem us from out from under sin's penalty. The judges that Israel had pointed that way. Israel was suffering under the penalty of their sin, and these judges come in and redeem them by God's hand from that penalty. We need that. The heart of the gospel points us to God saving us from what our sins deserve by Christ who takes our punishment in our place. But we need more than that. We need a deliverer who can save us from sin's power. It's power to enslave. Our sinfulness is willful. We are always responsible for everything we choose to do. But it has an enslaving power that is just like an addiction. Where the more we choose to sin, the more we can't not choose to sin. And the only solution, friends, is a radical and absolute change of heart. So that we obey not out of fear or pride, but out of love. What held Israel back was that any short-term obedience they had was only in response to what they got from God in that moment. They, according to the, the words of this text, Israel was playing the role of the prostitute in their relationship to other gods, to whom they offered intimacy in exchange for what they needed, and also to the God of their fathers, who when he was for them, giving them what they wanted, had some claim on their affection. But as soon as that receded to the background, they were looking for their next customer. None of us will ever have hearts that are any more stable, secure in holiness than Israel's, unless God does a radical work. And friends, Judges sets us up for the promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel for a time when we won't any longer just have words spoken over us, laws given to us that we can't fulfill. But when what we'll receive from his hand is a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, a heart that loves his ways. And it's what Jesus, we're told, has provided to us. I love the way that Paul puts this in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about our union with Jesus. He says this in verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Drop your practices. Drop your stubborn ways. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. From hearts of stone to hearts that beat. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Judges is here to help us see why that promise is such good news. And it's a promise, friends, to every one of you who will look to him in faith. Father, help us by your Spirit to claim this promise. Because we know from experience we won't, apart from your work. Israel is not more stubborn than we are. Israel had not seen less of your goodness than we have. And Israel had no more hope than we do for any deliverance apart from your hand. We've heard your word. Now help us to respond to it with humility and with joy by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.